It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 151, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Siri Erickson-Brown and Jason Salvo own and operate Local Roots Farm, 15 acres of diversified vegetables in the Snoqualmie River Valley, 30 miles west of Seattle. With 60% of their sales to restaurants and the remainder going to a CSA and a farmer's market, Siri and Jason take a low-tech, high-touch approach to marketing. We get into the nitty-gritty of how they manage their restaurant sales from crop planning to receiving orders and managing shortages and overages. Siri and Jason also explain how their multiple marketing outlets work together to sell a high percentage of what they grow. All three of us dig into our Latin roots, and yes, that's a pun, and Siri and Jason tell us about how that's influenced their choice of chicories as a major focus of their wholesale operation. We talk about how they use QuickBooks and other data to drive business decisions, and how they monitor business performance throughout the season to avoid surprises. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com And by Vermont Compost Company. Founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com And by you, our listeners. By setting up a small monthly donation at FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com donate, you can be a vital part of reaching and growing the Farmer to Farmer Podcast community. Siri Erickson-Brown and Jason Salvo, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer Podcast. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. So glad you guys could join me. Um, well, there's no reason for anybody else to know this, but I'll fess up because it's nice to know that nobody's perfect. We've had a heck of a time with the technology today. Thank you so much for hanging in there with me, guys. No problem. I'd like to start off by having you tell us about Local Roots Farm. Where, you're, where are you guys located? How long you've been farming? How much are you farming? And where are you selling it? All right. Uh, that's a, those are all good questions. Um, we are located in Duval, Washington, uh, which is about uh, 30 miles east of Seattle. We're in a beautiful uh, river valley that's on an uncontrolled river. Um, so we flood. Uh, we grow about 15 acres of diversified vegetables, and we sell to restaurants through a CSA and one farmer's market. And we have an honor system farm stand at the head of our driveway. You said you're on an uncontrolled river. What does that mean? Uh, that means there's no dams, no levees, um, no uh, any nothing to keep the river in its banks when we get flooding. And so periodically through the winter, sort of any time between November and April, we could have a flood that covers anything from a small portion of our farm to all of our farm. It's not fast moving water. It's not an erosive flood, but it does cover our vegetables. And so it's just, you know, one interesting extra element that we have to deal with here that a lot of people don't, I guess. I'm looking at the map of your farm here and I see that it's a Snoqualmie River and it's got kind of an oxbow shape to it. I'm thinking about flooding and that must be kind of hard to manage. <laughs> so I'll jump in here and say um, we farmed on rented acreage in the same valley for four years before we moved to uh, and bought our own land. So and in the time that we were on our first piece of property, we saw two the two biggest floods that had ever happened on our river. And so when it came time to, you know, make the leap and buy our own farm, we were very familiar with what we were getting ourselves into. And so 
we basically structure our year so we don't rely on any crops to come out of the field for sale between November 1st and sometime early spring. So we do have, you know, climate that will enable year-round growing maybe every other year. We won't get like such cold temperatures that stuff freezes out. But anything that we leave in the field like kale or radicchio that we can't bring in and store, uh, if we're able to harvest and sell that in the winter months, we just sort of view it as little bonus income. We don't count on it. So that's how we've come to terms with the potential flooding constraints. And then we also have to design all of our infrastructure and systems around it too. When Jason says our whole field can go underwater, that also includes our greenhouses, our propagation house, even like the barns that we have our cold storage in are all potentially could flood. I'm not even sure where to start because you're talking about flooding in your packing shed. I mean, are you guys shoveling mud out afterwards? How do you maintain an environment that's suitable for growing and washing and packing produce? So like Jason said, it's not really, the floods that we get aren't super destructive. There are certainly places in the river valley where when it's flooding, the current is moving pretty swiftly. But for the most part, it's like a bathtub effect. It's a very, very flat river valley. We're, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 miles from the mouth of where our river enters Puget Sound. But we're only at 50 feet of elevation. So if you can imagine how slowly the river must move to go that far in such a small amount of elevation loss, it's just Anyway, yeah, it's it's not messy afterward. We definitely get a light silt deposits in our field. We always kind of think of that as like the magic of soil building. All of our soils here are alluvially deposited. So we have super uh, deep topsoil, no rocks. It was all the result of historical floods. So no, it's not. I mean, it's uh, it's disruptive. I, I liken it sort of to a snow day. It's like kind of fun, kind of annoying. and But you know it's always possible that it's going to happen. So you just sort of expect it, and that's how we deal with it. And you mentioned having radicchio and kale out in the field and considering that a bonus if it doesn't flood. I assume you're not harvesting those crops once it does flood and then the waters recede. After, I think the USDA changed some of the rules about what you're allowed to do with flooded produce after Katrina in 2009. And I think when we started farming, they had said that the, the there was like a two-week period, you waited and you could sell stuff again. And after Katrina, they said, no, you really, once anything is flooded, you shouldn't sell it. And so we followed that rule pretty strictly for basically anything that's eaten raw, we'll never harvest and sell it again. Um, and one of the things that that's driven us to do is invest a whole bunch in cold storage. So we had a fake out flood a couple of weeks ago where they predicted a substantial flood that never materialized. And we ended up, we picked 4,000 heads of radicchio and put it in the cooler. You know, we basically said, how much can we sell in the time period before it'll start rotting? And we picked that much. And then we've actually, we just got through that where we're getting, we're almost through it right now. And we last week went out and just pre-harvested a whole bunch of more to, you know, get ahead of the next time that they predict a flood that might reach all those crops. And your cold storage then is protected from the floodwaters. No. So water in the seven years we've been here, I think we've seen water in the barn that has two of our coolers in it just once. And so what we've done in those situations is we put totes upside down on the ground and just elevated everything to get it off the floor. In the event of a really big flood, you know, I think that we would probably do other things. We maybe would take everything and put them on a trailer or, you know, put them in the, in the back of a, like the box truck to get them, that would get them 30 inches off the ground. Last year, we built a very large cooler where we're starting, we're restoring things in macro bins. And our strategy in that situation would be to actually put 
an empty macro bin on the floor and stack the rest of them on top, you know, that would get us 36 inches of freeboard before water got into any of the product. Do you guys live on the farm? We do. Yeah. We have a house that uh, was built in 1908 that has never been flooded. And a couple of years ago, the county paid for us to elevate it. So it is now, we've got an eight foot concrete foundation that we're sitting on. So we're way up in the air. But that's partly because the way that they do flood forecasting and flood mapping indicates that even though we've had some pretty sizable floods, we still haven't seen what they would currently consider to be a 100-year event. And the scenario Jason just described where we would have to do all sorts of crazy things to get our product up high in the cooler would be what we would be dealing with in a 100-year flood. And I think we all know all bets are off when it comes to weather events. But there is sort of a range of what's possible as far as how high the water can go. Probably we'll never see a flood that's several feet higher than the biggest one we've already seen. So there's sort of a range of what we expect to ever have to deal with that we've made peace with. <laughs> good. That's good <laughs> that you made peace with that. How did your guys' farm get started? I mean, you said you bought it seven years ago. Land isn't cheap in King County. Yeah. So uh, Jason and I were both in grad school and I was, this was in 2005, 2006. And I was sort of pondering my future and we'd done some traveling in Europe and growing a big vegetable garden in our backyard, living in Seattle at the time. And I got a chance opportunity to work on a farm for a summer with a grower I met at a farmer's market. And from that one year internship, or not even a year, a couple months during the summer, I met another landowner um, on the same road who was essentially looking for a business partner to start a farm with. So he had already invested in a greenhouse and a tractor, and he had um, some fields that he was working and sort of growing stuff literally just to watch it grow, not marketing anything and really never even leaving his farm. So that was our first that was our first farming situation. We farmed there in a partnership, kind of a creative lease partnership with the landowner, who was also a partner in our business. And we farmed there for four years without having to make any significant investment. You know, we weren't paying a huge amount of rent. We would sort of wait till the end of the year and figure out how much money we made and then arrange rent that way. We didn't have to spend a lot of money on infrastructure or equipment. And after four years, we had really built like a pretty substantial amount of, you know, business reputation. We had maybe a hundred or so CSA members. We were selling to 15 restaurants and we were at farmer's markets. And so when that, when it was time for that partnership to die a natural death, that's when we had to decide whether we were going to invest in buying our own land and continue farming or really just kind of like go back to boring, normal life. So we got really lucky with the farm that we ended up buying. But it is true. Land prices here are really expensive. We're really close to Seattle. We're only a half an hour drive away. So I think that it balances out with the fact that we have such ready access to a really flourishing metropolitan area that has a large appetite for locally grown produce. So I think we get a pretty good price for what we grow, but our cost of living is definitely higher than if we were a few hours away from the city. Why did you guys decide to farm in Seattle? What brought you to that area? As the name of our farm implies, we are both from the Seattle area. I was actually born north of Boston, but Siri and I both graduated from the same high school, Garfield High School, that my grandmother graduated from. And our moms both went to a uh, high school in Seattle, the same one that you went to, Chris, Roosevelt. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, right. Kind of a trip, huh? 
And so we have been, we were high school sweethearts. We have been together since we were like prepubescent, basically. And um, <laughs> not really. We didn't really choose the Seattle area as much as we just never wanted to leave it. Um, we both love living here. We love, you know, it's just in a really fantastic place. And so when, you know, Siri had this opportunity to farm with this, with this guy, our farm started, we made, I think that one of the ways that our farm was able to sort of get going more easily than I think some other people is that we had so many connections. Siri sent out an email just to everybody that we know and said, Hey, I'm starting a farm, join my CSA. And when you've gone to, you know, grade school, middle school, high school, college, grad school, in the same area and all of your family is in the area, you can cast an extremely wide net of potential customers to get started. And then I think that was, that got the ball rolling. And it's, you know, I think it is in, in large part, you know, because of the sort of the long standing connection we have to the area. So I don't, I don't think that we had have ever considered farming elsewhere. So having grown up in Seattle and having periodically in my life kind of circled back to Seattle, in fact, my, my mom and my stepdad, my sister all still live in the area you know, we thought about farming there and thought about starting a farm there before returning to Iowa and doing it there. But I have to ask, you know, so you guys, Garfield High School, one of two Latin programs in Seattle, were you guys Latin students? (laughs) Yes, we actually, we were Latin students. Jason and I and two of our um, still to this day good friends were the class of 97 Latin club nerds of Garfield High School. I love it. I love it. Because, okay, and this is so off of farming, but, you know, I was a Latin club nerd too all four years that I was in school. And, and in fact, it was a trip to the National Latin Club Convention in Bloomington, Indiana. That was my first time I'd ever been to the Midwest and the first time I'd ever seen a real thunderstorm and fireflies. Have you guys ever seen fireflies? I've never seen a firefly. I'm like such a West Coaster. I, I barely ever even leave Western Washington. You got to come I visit. I have seen fireflies, but not in Seattle. Siri, you got to come visit. It's it's totally worth the trip. It does sound very magical, but only in the summer, right? And who can leave their farm in the summer? That's true. True enough. So why farming? What was it that, I mean, Latin Club, Garfield High School, you talked about being in grad school. How did you get from there to a vegetable farm in the Snoqualmie River Valley? So that's a great question. And actually, I don't really have a clear answer for it. I think I've been um, sort of searching my whole life for something that felt like it would give back instead of sort of make the world worse. And that's what got me after I finished college, sitting on the couch for a summer being like, what kind of job am I going to do that's not going to make me feel like crap all the time? And I went back to grad school for public administration. So I have a master's in public administration from the University of Washington with the goal in mind of working in government or nonprofit. And um, I think I'm very, very lucky that I got the chance to work on the farm when I did. Now it seems like there's farming opportunities. Every campus in the U.S. seems like they have a college farm. There's tons of classes in sustainable agriculture and food systems. And when I was in college, there was none of that. Like the idea that you could go work on a farm was pretty, like I had never heard of that. So I feel really thankful that I found farming when I did. And for me, I'm, you know, kind of, what's the word that we use to describe ourselves, Jason? Pathologically anti-authoritarian. So (laughs) I don't ever want to work for anybody else. I don't like people telling me what to do. And 
but I also didn't want to go into something like sales and, you know, start a small business just selling whatever. So I really love farming because I'm growing food. It's something that everybody needs. I think in the small farming movement, we are looking for a way to do food production with a, with a lighter footprint on the earth. And even though I think I'm a lot less idealistic than when I started out, I still feel like on the whole, I'm going to leave the world a little bit better than how I found it. And also nobody tells me what to do. Jason, did you just follow Siri or was this something that captivated your imagination as well? No, I definitely just followed Siri. When the first year that, that we had this farm, Siri started it. Um, and I actually was an attorney very, very briefly. Um, so I worked, we, when we sat down and Siri was like, should I do this? And I was like, well, I'm going to have a job where I make money. So like, what a great opportunity for you to like, you know, see if this is the thing that you've been looking for, for all these years. Um, and I, that year was sitting in an office being bored and like hating my job and Siri was having so much fun and was like just incredibly energized about, you know, what she was doing. And I was like, wow, I wish I was doing that. So the next year I quit my job and I like signed on as a, you know, just to, to be a, a part of, you know, something that seemed really cool. And then by the end of our tenure at the place where we were renting, I was fully invested and, you know, have never really looked back. But I definitely got into it, not because I was passionate about farming, but because I just was looking for something that was more exciting than a desk job. That's a pretty low bar. (laughs) Your farm actually came to my attention at first because you guys grow a lot of chicories. You specialize in heirloom Italian varieties. What caused you guys to head in that direction? Yeah, There's so many different places to start. So we worked on a farm in Italy before uh, we went to grad school. And on the, this farm, it was an olive orchard, it, and they had, it wasn't a vegetable farm, but they had a, you know, lovely vegetable garden that we would go out and harvest food from, which sort of turned into, we got back to Seattle, and we would go to the grocery store, and a lot of the stuff was accessible, but it was either expensive, or the quality wasn't any good, and we were like, well, let's just grow it ourselves, and so my dad's side of the family is Italian, I studied Italian in college, I, we've been to Italy a whole bunch, so we've got an affinity for, you know, the language and the food. I think the sort of cooking element of the the food scene is one of the things that sort of brought us into farming. And then we, a friend of ours who was a chef, like we sat down with him the first year and he was like, you should grow this, you should grow this, you should grow this. We went, we're going through the Seeds from Italy catalog. And we started growing all this Italian stuff. And then it, it turned out we really loved eating it and loved the story of chicories um in general i mean i don't know how much you know about it chris but that they're all of the different radicchios are sort of like the modern seed breeding sort of happened in belgium and this belgian guy went to northern italy and like started showing people how to do the sort of more rapid modern selection process and each one of these towns in the veneto region of italy selected their own strain of like from a wild chicory to what we know, and they're so different and they're all unique to a particular town or area within like a, you know, a state in Italy. Um, and so in addition to being beautiful and delicious, they have a cool history. And then on top of that, they just grow really well for us here. I think our climate in the Stokholmi Valley is must be similar enough to that of the Po River Valley in Italy that we, um, you know, it works for us. And then it's, 
I think partially having all that has driven a lot of our restaurant sales, which have turned into a 60% of our income these days. I guess I didn't realize that all of the names of the different varieties of chicory were that closely associated with different regions or different towns in Italy. Treviso is a town, Castelfranco is a town, Verona is a town, Chioggia is a town. Each one of the strains that you that you're familiar with is actually it's the it's Radicchio di Treviso. It's the Radicchio of Treviso, and the other one's Radicchio di Castelfranco. And they in each one of those towns has like a little you know festival celebrating their their type of Radicchio. It's really cool. This is a nice little tie-in with our shared love of the classics and the Latin language is when we first started growing these chicories that we were buying from seeds from Italy, the Franchi brand that are um, imported for distribution here in the States. I just bought like every variety that they offered in the catalog. And because I had a background in Latin and speak a little bit of Italian, I was able to sort of decipher some of the nomenclature um, that I think even a lot of other folks who were growing radicchio in the States at the time hadn't quite figured out the difference between Precoce and Tardivo. And there's such amazing um, specialization in these varieties in Northern Italy that they're really bred, not just the different types, but different times of year down to even just like the one for a July harvest and August harvest and wintertime harvest. So we did a ton of trialing, but also sort of sleuthing through what all of the different words on the seed packet even meant to try to figure out which ones would actually grow and form ahead at the time of year that we were hoping to harvest. So um, we're now working a little bit with one of, with Don Navasio, who is the breeder at Johnny's right now. And he's been working on radicchio varieties and um, winter hardy radicchio with some other growers in the Pacific Northwest for quite a few years. And so he came out to visit our farm over the winter and we got to show him and help him actually figure out some of the naming stuff that he hadn't really put together in the past. So it's pretty cool that the language thing can be uh, uh, an avenue to success with vegetable growing. I'm having such flashbacks to, you know, 1988 and Latin class and going, Latin is not really a dead language. It's not really a dead language. (laughs) Yeah, there's the precoce and there's the precocissimo, right? So there's the early and there's the super early. (laughs) Oh, okay. We're not going to go down that road because I have a feeling that the vast majority of our listeners would find this tremendously boring if we turn this into a, into a Latin class. Um, (laughs) So now the chicories, are you doing some of the forcing varieties as well? Because I understand that I don't know this firsthand. I have some experience with Belgian endive, but of course that's not really an Italian chicory, or at least I wouldn't think of it as being an Italian chicory. But I understand that that's a large portion of kind of the the chicory culture in Northern Italy. So for the last couple of years, we we have grown, the Treviso Tardivo is the forcing strain of, you know, within the Treviso genus, I guess, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so that's the one where we dig up the whole plant, bring it indoors in the dark, and then it grows. And like, because you've dug up root and all, it continues to grow. And in the dark, it does, it works the same way that they do Belgian endives. Um, in Northern Italy, they have hot springs. And so they're putting the roots in warm water while the leaves are still outside in the cold air. Before the growing in Belgian endive, I think they put them in sand or they put them in, you know, just pools of water or nothing at all. 
we have done that with, you know, to varying degrees of success over the years. I think what we're trying this year is we're actually, we found that we've had the nicest ones are the ones that we've just left in the field and walked away from. And I don't know if it's because it's always cloudy here through the winter, but they, they end up looking pretty well blanched on in their hearts. And, you know, they look the nicest and we get the biggest ones when we haven't brought them in. Although I think, I know you interviewed Chris Field from Campo Rosso Farm a while ago. He has a much nicer, he's invested a lot in the forcing setup. And I think he's, I'm sure his results are better than ours. But ultimately, you know, what it, what it is, it's, you know, it's, it's going from sort of taking energy from the soil for growth. And it's whatever is stored up in the root that it's putting on new growth. And then when you do it in the dark, you get like a, a darker red on the leaf and a whiter white on the rib of each leaf. And what other Italian vegetables are you growing? Have you branched out beyond just the chicories? In reality, what we've done is actually scaled back, not specifically on specialty stuff, but as our farm has grown and we've gotten like older and jaded and had children, I think we've just looked for ways to simplify. And the fact that there is such a big demand for the radicchio and we seem to do a good job and we really love it. Um, so we've more specialized than sort of branched out. And when we started out, you know, we grew just a little bit of everything, which I think is pretty typical for new farmers getting started, you know, try to see what, what people like, what does well. And you can really drive yourself crazy trying to be an expert at a hundred different crops. So um, we still have a very diverse farm because we have a CSA, but as far as, you know, every little different novelty thing, we've kind of, we've, we've uh, gone the opposite direction in the last four or five years. Sorry if that's not exciting. That's not that exciting, but it's also <laughs> reality, right? I mean, that is, I, I remember when at our farm, we were very identified with carrots. And then I, at one point I figured out that we were making so much more money on beets per pound in terms of our net, not our gross. And I got really excited about growing beets and less excited about growing carrots, even though that was the vegetable that was on our truck. You know, and I think that is just part of the reality of growing older and, and of maturing a farm business. We don't have a problem of romanticizing what we do. We're, you know, business people and trying to make good business decisions. And so we're not afraid to give up on something that is just maybe not profitable or even if it's something we really love. I will say the thing I've like always shed a tear about is broccoli rabe or chime durata. Like I just love, love it. And it's not a profitable crop for us by any stretch of the imagination, but I have a fantasy about having a little backyard garden so I can grow and eat that stuff. But, you know. <laughs> going to let you in on a hint, Siri, that is that um, once you've farmed, having a little backyard garden is almost impossible because you're going to try to grow like a foot of broccoli, Rob, and, and it's just not going to work because you're going to plant 20 feet of broccoli, Rob, and then you'll have more than anybody could possibly <laughs> use. Right. Well, don't, you know, I challenge you. I could eat 20 throw feet of broccoli rabe probably in a week, but okay. <laughs> I, I get your point. <laughs> now, you said that restaurants are 60% of your sale right now. That's a huge percentage in restaurants. And, and it seems like kind of the opposite of what I usually hear from farms that have a CSA and a farmer's market and an on-farm stand. I'm curious why you've continued to keep those other marketplaces open when the restaurants are such a successful outlet for you? Ooh, that's a great question. As restaurant sales have grown, we've 
ask a lot of tough questions about the other outlets that we do maintain. And we've been steadily scaling back our farmer's market presence because when we look at the amount of labor involved with market attendance compared to driving a route and dropping off, you know, orders at, at restaurants or even the CSA, it's just a much more time-consuming way to sell an individual head of lettuce or a bunch of carrots. So markets are kind of fading into the past for us. But we really like the complement of restaurants and CSA and then having something like the farm stand or farmer's market that sort of takes the overflow. Um, so as much as we try to have really a consistent supply of an, any given crop for restaurants from week to week so that the same items are always appearing on our fresh sheet, there it's nice to have a second, if not a second and third outlet to sort of take up any excess, or, you know, if or or vice versa so for us the way that the interplay of those three types of sales outlets has worked has been really great i think we have a very efficient ratio of like what we grow to what we sell there's very little waste that goes on on our farm even though we've you know continued to be a i don't know if you'd call 15 acres medium size but i think we end up selling a high percentage of what we grow compared to other farms of our size. I think if you're only doing one type of sales, whether it's just restaurants or just CSA, it's a lot easier to end up with a glut of something that you don't really have another way to move. So with the fresh sheet, we can sort of play with pricing and say, oh, wow, we, we grew twice as much cauliflower as we needed, and we don't want to overload the CSA, and we can lower the price on cauliflower and move it to restaurants. Or we can say, you know, we just have an extra couple hundred pounds of cauliflower this week and we can keep the price high in the fresh sheet and um, it's a nice way to sort of be really efficient with product. How many restaurants are you selling to? I think that we've invoiced 100 different restaurants this year. Wow. You said you've invoiced 100 different restaurants this year. It doesn't sound like there's 100 different restaurants on your regular delivery route. No, we uh, usually deliver... Uh, we do two delivery routes a week, and there's usually between 25 and 30 stops on Wednesday and 15 and 20 on Saturday, and probably between Wednesday and Saturday, 10 of the of the Saturday delivery, about half also ordered on Wednesday. So we're probably delivering to like 40 unique restaurants a week. So are you guys doing anything interesting as far as an order management system for the restaurants? No, it is. We're, I think we're, we're like technologically um, pretty, pretty, pretty behind the times, and I we actually talk about this a lot. So I use, I send out an email, the, you know, they email me back or they text me back. I put it into an Excel spreadsheet to collate, um, you know, the, to basically that, that generates our harvest list. Likewise, Siri communicates with the CSA by email. We don't take credit card payments. And we sort of have thrown out the idea that like, if you go and you get one of these fancy, you know, order online, look like a slick, you know, modern business that it actually it, you lose some of the cachet of being a like quaint little, you know, podunk vegetable farm, which sometimes, you know, I, I think maybe that's part of what people are buying. You know, it's not just the vegetables, but it's the story. And as soon as you start looking too slick, then the story starts to not seem like what people project it to be. So I'm curious when you talk about, you know, maintaining that image of, of kind of, you know, quaintness and, and sort of down home and, and all of those other things, do you feel like sometimes that holds you back in terms of what you could accomplish or forces you into inefficient systems on the farm? That is a good question. I, no, I don't, I don't think so. Do you, Terry? I don't, I don't think so either. And it's, it's something we actually talk about quite a bit is, I mean, we're very open to 
time-saving, efficiency-gaining innovations. I mean, we've bought a lot of tools that have um, created, you know, big gains in efficiency for the farm. Like, we're not afraid to embrace new things. But when it comes to the way that we communicate with our customers, whether it's our CSA customers or restaurant accounts, I really think, like, it's working. The way we're doing it now is working really well for us. Like, we get our respective tasks like I manage our CSA, Jason handles all of our restaurant sales, and we get the jobs done that it takes to keep it moving um, pretty quickly every week. Yeah, it's just not an area that we've identified as something that we need to change. And I personally, I kind of like it. I don't love getting like MailChimp emails. I always, I'm much less likely to read that than I am to read like a something that's just written in plain type from somebody. Yeah, i just like to dovetail into what Siri said. Um, you you couldn't remember what word he is. I used the word podunk, which actually I don't think, I think I'm, I was sort of being self-deprecating when I said that. It's just what Siri said about MailChimp. I think that part of the reason that people buy from us is the relationship. Like I'm, like we're sort of personal friends with a whole bunch of the chefs that we work with. We're personal friends with a lot of our CSA members. And by sending an actual email rather than through, you know, a service, it does have like more of a like familiar friendly um, vibe than than a like slick, you know, Silicon Valley startup, you know, web email service does. And I actually think that that like personal connection is one of the things that like that drives sales for us. And I suppose, especially in a place like Seattle, where so many things are kind of high tech and low touch, that that might be a niche there that really does make sense. Well, so far, so good. We're not planning on changing it. You know, we also weren't planning on getting a whole lot bigger than our current size. So I think, you know, if we were suddenly going to double in size, I think there are points beyond which you can't continue to use such a low-tech system. But um, at this point, we don't see ourselves going there. So, you know, stay the course. Are you guys handling your own distribution into Seattle? Yes. We we have a couple of delivery vans, and we have – you know, it's our workers that do it. And I, especially it's funny, Siri and I were talking about this, you know, about what, you know, we think our farm is doing good at and what our farm is not doing so good. At. We actually, we, were, we think doing our own distribution is something that we, I think, do a pretty good job with. You know, there's all these food hubs and co-ops and things popping up. I'm actually on the board of a, like, growers co-op here in, in the Valley. And a lot of the sort of selling point why you would want to sell through a food hub or a co-op is because like the distribution and and delivery is so hard or so costly or so time consuming or whatever and i think in part it's because we're so close to seattle and in part it's because i think we always basically are sending a full van in but for like the local food hub that we sometimes sell through they tack on almost 30 percent on top of our sales price for like the price that the customer sees because that's what it costs them to run their like distribution and billing and all that stuff. And when we break it down, we're like, we're spending more like four or 5% of the total sales on the cost of the driver and, and invoicing and doing all that stuff. And so when we sort of compare, you know, should we sell through a food hub or should we keep doing what we're doing? We realize like doing our own distribution is, is very efficient for us. And again, with having that kind of high touch hands-on relationships, probably really important for you as well. Yes, I think you know, having it be, you know, one of our people or me doing the deliveries and sort of chatting them up and being like, oh, yeah, you know, this is this 
you know, crop is going to be ready soon. I know that last year you're really into buying whatever, like it'll be back, you know, in another week or whatever. That's, you know, that's the kind of thing that you can't, it's much harder to outsource. I'm not saying you can't, but it's definitely more difficult. When you guys were getting started, you mentioned that, that Siri was able to reach out and contact a lot of your friends and your community members from all of the years that you were in school there and the, and the community that you had built before you started farming. Did that include the restaurant accounts or has that been something that you guys have worked to pick up as your farm has grown? Um, it's been a little bit of both. A lot of our success is attributable to just being in the right place at the right time. And we got started in 2007, right at the beginning of the sort of second wave of what I'd say, you know, the local food movement. And we did have some connections in the restaurant world. But then we also just made some, you know, some new connections by just being at a farmer's market and having some unusual products. One of the customers that has been with us since our very first year as a vegetarian restaurant in Seattle that found us at the farmer's market, really liked our pea vines and, you know, has now been a very good customer for 11 years. So it's a little bit of both, you know, and then. The nice thing about working with restaurants, especially when, well, this is when we were, you know, young and childless, so we'd dine out a lot. And um, getting to know the people cooking, not just the restaurant owner or the head chef, but the sous chef or somebody else working in the kitchen. And then when they move on to another restaurant, they would bring our business with them. So it's been a pretty organic growth in our restaurant sales. And is there... Something special that you do to cultivate those restaurant sales? Because I would think in Seattle that you would have a lot of competition for that. I mean, there's no lack of small, local vegetable farms in the area west of the Cascades. Yeah, that's a, that is a darn good question. I, you know, we sort of marvel a lot at how rapidly our restaurant sales grow have, have grown over the years and how, I mean, we had this scenario this summer where we were understaffed and our restaurant orders were, you know, we keep getting, we kept getting larger orders than we could deal with. And I was like, I'm going to raise the price and try and get some people to stop ordering from us. And I raised a whole bunch of our prices and our orders didn't shrink at all. <laughs> um, yeah, right. I love it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so much for supply and demand, right? Right. Well, I mean, it just shows that that demand is more elastic than we thought. All right. Spoken like a grad student. Nicely done. Yeah. Right. Thanks. I hope I got that right. <laughs> Might have said it backwards. Um, but, you know, I mean, so we, I mean, I partially, I think it's like if we're doing anything special to like cultivate the restaurant accounts. Partially, my answer is no. Like we are for a while, I've been trying to like figure out how to slow them down. Um, because when we said, hey, we don't want to make our farm any bigger and restaurant sales kept growing, we're like, well, we're, we can either like cap that or start cutting out other ways that we sell. You know, and Siri alluded to, we're going to leave the last farmer's market that we had been doing next year. So we're going to cut that out. But even still, it's hard to imagine that um, that restaurant sales won't continue to climb um, just because of the way it works. And I think like when it comes down to why that is, it's kind of like really basic stuff. It's like I send a fresh sheet out on exactly the same day every week where we always deliver what we say we're going to deliver. And I'm, always communicating with all of our accounts about if we're short on something or like if we have extra stuff, I'm texting them and saying, Hey, I've got 15 pounds of extra cauliflower. I know that you guys have been ordering it. Do you want it? You know, that, that kind of stuff. And I think it's customer service as much as anything else. And then, you know, in part, it's just because I think, you know, there's a lot of other 
farms that are also selling to restaurants in the area. But I think because we started earlier than most of them that we're generally, you know, competing with, you know, as Siri said, like the sous chef at this restaurant goes and becomes the head chef at another restaurant and they bring you with them. And so it's, you know, sort of like a virally spreading business. And so, you know, the longer you've been in, they've been around, the more that like exponential growth, the more time you've had for the accounts to grow. I get a lot of questions about restaurant sales. And, and I think you really just hit on something that was, that was really important. And that is you send out the fresh sheet on the same day, at the same time, every week. You stay in communication with your customers. You deliver what you say you're going to deliver. You, yeah, I guess, I mean, that's, I mean, that's really it, isn't it? I, I think it is. And it's actually, when I hear, you know, I get texts from our restaurants and like, oh, so-and-so shorted me this. Do you have, you know, 25 pounds of beets? Or, you know, I got this stuff, but it, you know, they only gave me half, you know, I got shorted or they didn't bring it or, and like, I'm the go, like we're the go-to rest um, farm when other people don't follow through. And I, I mean, it actually really blows my mind that if, if we're coming up short on something, I'm always like the day ahead, you know, I'm like, hey, we're short on this. Can I sub this thing or just, you know, because I guess, I mean, I don't know, it's putting myself in their shoes and imagining how shitty it is to be, you know, at four o'clock on you're trying to prep stuff and this important component of your dish doesn't show up. And like, I don't ever want to put one of our accounts in that sort of bind. And so I guess we're just really you know, trying to get ahead on that kind of communication so that we never let anybody down. Under promise and over deliver. What does your workflow look like when you're working with restaurants? When are you sending out the fresh sheets? When do you get the orders in? When are you doing the harvesting? And, and how does that relate to loading up the deliveries and getting those out the door? That's a good question. We're really systematized when it comes to that um, portion of our farm. So I send out my fresh sheets on uh Wednesdays and Saturdays, which are also our delivery days. So if we start the week on Wednesday, we're sending out a truck that morning to do deliveries, and I'm sending out a fresh sheet for the for people to order for the Saturday. Then we're harvesting on harvesting and packing on Friday, delivering on Saturday, and then I start the process again. I send the fresh sheet out Saturday. We're harvesting and packing on Tuesday for Wednesday delivery. People just place their orders by email, so. Jason gets up early on Tuesday and Saturday to input the last orders that have come in, collate them in the spreadsheet so we can print it out and have a pick list for the crew. And, you know, in the summer, the vast majority of our crops are picked to order the day before they get delivered. So we're not doing a ton of um, just like go out and harvest, you know, a bunch of cases of chard and then pull them off the shelf. It's like almost exclusively picked to order. But at this point in the year, we're mostly just pulling anything that is being ordered is coming out of storage. So um, it's sort of the, the workflow itself really is pretty seasonal. But in the summer, our, our Tuesday harvest, which is our biggest harvest of the week, is kind of crazy. Like the day can go pretty long because we can't predict who's going to order. So if a couple of those people who are not regulars all decide to order on the same week, it can be a pretty crazy day. We start at 7, we pick all the loose cut, you know, leafy prone to wilt items first thing. That stuff goes in and starts getting processed. And then, you know, it's just going down the list from like most tender to most hearty. But our day can go as late as six um, in the pack shed on, on harvest days. And, you know, that's sort of the thing that I think is like our biggest challenge in our week. 
is we you can't just bring on an extra staff person necessarily to cover that Tuesday. And so that's what Jason was talking before about trying to get a handle on our restaurant growth. You know, we don't want to say no to people, but we have to figure out a way to to meet the challenge every Tuesday. It's kind of kind of intimidating. I'm imagining that, you know, when you have a Tuesday like what you just described, where several extra restaurants place orders, people that aren't ordering every week, and then all of a sudden you get a huge surge, that must result occasionally in product shortages. How do you guys manage that? You know, I'm really conservative about what I put on the press sheet, like, because I guess I just hate being in the position of having to tell somebody that we don't have something. Um, and so as we've sort of evolved in like, and as restaurants have become a larger and larger share of the business, you know, we sort of designed the farm around the CSA where we're like, CSA gets first pick when the cauliflower's on, like we pick 300 heads of cauliflower and those go to the CSA. And then we start selling the excess once the, you know, we've checked the cauliflower box for the CSA. Um, and what that's driven us to do is take some items and just grow them in really large quantities so that we can feel pretty confident that we'll always have enough. And then when we have that excess, if, the, if we put it in the, in the CSA and then we are starting the restaurant cycle and it looks like there's still excess, we could put it in the CSA again as a sort of way to manage the, the overflow. Um, and then when we do come up with a shortage, I'm just always, you know, I call, the, like, I look, I see who ordered last and I sort of try and you know, I mean, be extremely fair. You know, I'm not going to play favorites with a restaurant just because they're a big account. Like if they got their order last, I'm going to say, hey, I'm sorry, these people you know, they, they were they were more on time and so they get the the last item and I just work backwards in like chronologically to just say, Hey, you know, sorry, we're you know, we didn't manage to get thirty pounds of broccoli for you, you know, just heads up or you should order it from somebody else. But it doesn't we're happen usually, that much, honestly. Right, we're usually pretty on top of it. You know, we have uh, a lot of our crew has been with us for many years and so the people who sort of specialize in different crops are you know, we're, we have a really good system for getting that information. Oh, we're going to have, you know, a, the broccoli's on. We're going to have a ton of broccoli, like, and then deciding collectively how to manage it. And so when there are those kind of awkward in-between things where um, it's not enough to just list it on the spreadsheet, but we know we have sort of a limited quantity that doesn't have another home to go to, like in the CSA or to a market, then, you know, we know our regular restaurant accounts well enough to know who is most likely to want that, like who could put broccoli on their menu, who wants, you know, something special this week. So Jason will reach out and make individual calls or texts to try to move just a little bit of something. Um, and then sometimes, like especially with tomatoes, we really manage tomatoes tightly because the Pacific Northwest, they don't grow amazingly well here. We do them all in high tunnels, and we are always trying to give a pound of tomatoes in the CSA in the height of the summer. So tomatoes are one of the few crops that will just load flat on the um, restaurant delivery van and they'll sell them off the truck. So that's another way that when we have, you know, something that's kind of tricky to manage supply, we'll, um, we won't even list it on the fresh sheet, but we'll still sell it to restaurants. So this is kind of a fiddly question, but when you talk about loading stuff onto the van with, you know, with 40 different restaurants that you might be dropping off at in any given week, that's got to be pretty tightly organized in a delivery truck, if you're sending out a full truck for that to all work, and now you're talking about, you know, having tomatoes that you're also selling off of the back of the truck, can you tell us a little bit about how you get all of that organized? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've never thought about that as being, I mean, it's a, it's a part of the, 
delivery day that takes a pretty, it takes a decent amount of time. So when we, in the wash station, we're, you know, all of the lettuce comes in, all the lettuce gets boxed up. It, the boxes of lettuce go on a pallet. You know, they're all labeled for the, each restaurant, but they're not organized by like the route. When the delivery driver, like we pull all the pallets out in the morning and then we organize all the boxes by restaurant. So they're, you know, we have pallets on the floor, we've got tables and we start sorting them. And then it sort of serves two functions. One, the per the driver's going down and checking to make sure everything that is on our harvest list actually ended up in a box. So, you know, we catch mistakes that way. And then we load the van starting with the last stop and then working our way in so that when you open the door at your first stop, the first restaurant's boxes are the, first, the ones in the back. And then as you pull those out, the next restaurant's boxes are now the farthest in the back. I'll just say um, that to Jason's credit, he also has the pick list that our crew uses to harvest and pack on Tuesdays is also organized in order of the route. So he's got this like crazy spreadsheet that he can sort of expand and collapse that has every account that's ever bought from us and in order of like where they would go on the truck. So that's built into the system. So when the delivery driver on Wednesday morning is loading the truck, it's already done in order. So they can work down the list and pack from, you know, last to first on this off the same sheet. It's not a it's not a separate system. Because because we're gonna pick like all of the, you know, arugula and head lettuce and salad mix first because it's the most prone to wilting. And so like the last restaurant to get delivered to might have ordered all, you know, tons of lettuce and arugula. And so on, like, as the pallets go into the cooler, all of the restaurant stuff is sort of a jumble when the, at the end of the harvest day. And it gets sorted and organized by the sort of order of delivery on the morning of, de- of delivery. As the guy who used to load the delivery van at Rock Spring Farm, I found that a lot of times everybody would question, like, how long it took. You know, because sometimes it was an hour or an hour and mm-hmm. a half to get everything fit into the van in the right order so that as I was driving that sprinter through the Twin Cities, I was able to pull everything off with a minimum of fuss. And we were talking about maybe 10 or 11 stops. You're talking about 40. More like 30 on our big delivery day. But yeah, still. So, I mean, basically, it's like, if you can imagine, it's all a jumble in the cooler. We pull it out of the cooler and then we start organizing. We basically make a pile of boxes that's for restaurant one and a pile of boxes for restaurant two and a pile of boxes for restaurant three. We go down the list, make sure that everything that's supposed to be going to restaurant one isn't, has in fact been packed for restaurant one. And then restaurant one's order goes into the van, or we should say restaurant 30 goes into the van first, and then restaurant 29, and then restaurant 28, Got and it. so on and so forth until you get to restaurant one, your first stop, but it gets sorted. Like, like you said, it takes an hour, probably at least on the morning of the, that we do delivery to sort everything out. And are you guys doing a standardized case pack when somebody orders radicchio, is it always 10 pounds of radicchio or can one restaurant order six pounds and another order eight pounds and another order 13 pounds? For better or worse, it's the, the latter. It's people can order. I have cases. So the way that I try and structure our prices is that you know, I want to, I, we say, how about how much Treviso fits in a box? Okay, it's 15 pounds. I want to sell a 15 pound case of Treviso. So that's the easiest way to pack and sell stuff. 
But I also have, you know, I people order all non-standard sizes and we accommodate them. And do you charge more for non-standard sizes? I don't, but I should. In a way, though, we do, because if you order a standard case count, then you get a discounted price. So, I mean, if you're just if you're if you're just ordering three each of 10 different things, then you're going to pay close to market price. But the discounts kick in when you do order in a quantity that's more convenient for us to pack. And do you have a minimum order to make a delivery? I don't. That's actually something that I've, well, okay. So I've always thought, you know, I'd rather have a carrot than a stick as far as motivation. So um, what I do is I, for orders over a hundred dollars, I give a 10% discount. So just like 10% off of everything if they crack $100. Because I we're friends with a lot of people who have relatively small restaurants and I don't want to say, no, you've got to order whatever, $75 or $100 just to work with me. Um, and so I try and encourage them to, to order more by making the making it a better price if they do crack that $100 um, uh, threshold. There are there have been restaurants who are either in a really inconvenient location or who have been hard to work with who I have told that they have to meet a certain minimum in part just because it's you know it's either cost us so much money to drive there or you know whatever. And then what kind of planning work do you do with your chefs? Shockingly little, actually. Uh, for quite a few years, I would try and send out emails, say, "Hey, what do you what are you interested in? What could we do better? What could we do worse?" And I never really manage to engage with anybody about, you know, varieties or, you know, any, or really anything. People just said, oh, you know, we like what you're doing, you know, keep it up. So I've sort of given up on trying to like work specifically with anybody. Um, although that being said, we did have one account this year who just blew us up and we are talking about ways that we can work with them to try and I mean, basically, I, I was actually drafting an email to them today to try and say, hey, like, you guys bought a lot of stuff from us. Like, how can we make this work more smoothly next year? And I'll just say, we don't do any sort of preseason, you know, sit down with staff to help us figure out how much to grow or what varieties. But I think we actually are doing that sort of market research all the time. You know, we're getting feedback in real time from folks even if it's just in the form of like, oh, wow, that was really awesome and I want to buy a lot more of it. And and I think also just attending farmer's markets in person for so many years. I mean, we did the farmer's market grind for 10 years and had tons of interaction with home cooks and restaurant cooks who'd come to the market. And I think we've developed a pretty good like sense for what people want, so what sort of quality expectations and um, so, yeah, I feel pretty good about like how we get the information that we need to make good choices about crop planning and stuff like that. With that, we're going to stop here, take a quick break, get a word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Siri Erickson-Brown and Jason Salvo from Local Roots Farm in Duval, Washington. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are real farming equipment for real farmers. And with PTO-driven attachments like rototillers, flail mowers, rotary plows, power harrows, log splitters, snow throwers, even a utility trailer and a new water transfer pump, you've got the tools you need to get jobs done across the farm and across the homestead. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions for mowing and tilling before we finally got smart and bought a BCS. Even though we owned a four-wheel tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, 
That BCS tackled jobs that we simply couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. Plus, they're gear-driven for years of dependable service. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. Perennial support is also provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. Vermont Compost potting soils are a really special product. I used Vermont Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew some great transplants with it. I mean, really great transplants, year after year. At a time in the organic movement when we're seeing more and more companies jumping on the bandwagon, Vermont Compost is a reminder of the art and the craft of making potting soil. They mix an incredible diversity of ingredients into the compost that forms the basis of their potting soil, incorporating many kinds of manures along with plant materials and food waste to foster structure and aeration that really matters. One thing I've always appreciated about Vermont Compost is their ability to put out a consistent product year after year after year. And in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something you can count on. VermontCompost.com And we're back with Siri Erickson-Brown and Jason Salvo from Local Roots Farm in Duval, Washington. You know, as, as we talked in the first part of the show, a couple of things came out about, I don't know, some things that seem like you're, you know, you're making some changes in the farm, you've slowed down with the number of farmer's markets that you're doing, and now you're getting ready to drop that last one. You've really taken a, a pretty deliberate and focused approach with how you're managing technology and information flows. Talk to me about that. How, how are you guys making these decisions? So I, I was going to save this for the lightning round, but I'm willing to confess right now that my favorite tool on the farm is QuickBooks. Um, I've always been a QuickBooks user, even before we started farming. I had a little bit of small business experience um, in, in high school and college, even working for people who ran small businesses. And so it's been a really easy, familiar thing for me to use. And we just track a lot of stuff. Um, I didn't work on a lot of farms before we started farming. And the way that I've compensated for that is just by obsessively documenting and then analyzing, you know, what works, whether it's planting dates or how much of something we brought to the market and whether we sold it or not and what, what price and all that stuff. So we spend a lot of time looking at things from a lot of different angles with the aid of just a ton of, of data. And I'm not a fan of just collecting information for the sake of information. Um, I like to use it and I'm always sort of thinking about how we can not just how we can change, but how we could do something better, how we can get a better outcome. And so that's kind of a high level way of talking about it, but it really comes down to just like making those decisions in the off season about um, how much of a crop we want to grow. You know, could we have sold more of this? Was it a struggle? What are we going to cut back on? What are we going to grow more of? And obviously it starts in the winter, but then just like every week, just looking at like comparing sales to the same week the previous year and trying to figure out if it's off, why, and if there's anything we can do about it. So I spent a lot of time actually in that role. I find it particularly interesting that you say you spend a lot of time in that role, and it sounds like you spend a lot of time in that role as the season's going on. That's not an easy thing to do because it never seems as important to do that kind of work in July as it does to do it in December. 
maybe it's partly a, a factor of having had kids in the middle of sort of the growth of our farm um, is that when you're nursing a baby, you're sort of like, well, what can I do? I could look something up on QuickBooks, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, trying to stay active, trying to keep my, um, trying to maintain my role on the farm as a manager and decision maker, while also being the parent of young kids, I think has pushed me in that direction. I've always had an affinity for it, but I think just this stage in our lives has, it's almost like sort of a silver lining to the whole like motherhood thing that can really put a cramp in your farming style. But um, it has given me the opportunity to spend more time diving into the the books and the records for the last, I don't know, at this point it's been a lot of years, but, but now it's sort of part of my routine. So Every two, you know, twice a week, Jason um, invoices restaurants. And after that, I usually spend a half an hour or so, like, kind of checking on reports. So I'll always compare year-to-date sales for this year and the prior year and sort of track our progress over the year. And that's really, like, the one that I do on a weekly basis. And then I do some other stuff on a more of a monthly basis. After we do payroll at the end of every month, I sort of, like, check on that, compare our payroll you know, percent increase or decrease to like sales increases or decreases. And it's just kind of like a benchmark for like, I don't want to get to the end of the year and be surprised. And is that something that, that you engage Jason in that monitoring and decision-making process as the year goes on? Or is that something you're really handling on your own, Siri? Um, you know, it's a little bit of both. Like I will sort of be like, oh, hey, you want to hear how we did this week? And, you know, we talk about it and... I think I think we have an interesting sort of difference in how we like to approach change. Like, I love change. I'm like, I want to change stuff all the time. And Jason's like, don't change anything. Keep the <laughs> ship on a steady course. So, <laughs> so I think in, for the most part, it works. It balances out pretty well. Because I'm always, like, looking for something we can tweak and I think between, you know, we kind of go back and forth a little about it and then land on probably the nice, you know, happy medium solution to it. Jason, I just want to say, I feel you, man. I feel you. <laughs> it's been a, you know, there's a lot of dynamic tension, we'll call it, um, in, in sort of our approach to a, a lot of things, which, you know, a lot of times, you know, we'll get into an argument about whether we should do this or that. And then in the end, you know, we find some sort of middle path compromise and it is, you know, hard fought. But, and then in retrospect, we're like, well, that's probably like we got to this path, which is working because we come at things from such different perspectives. Has that always been the case? I mean, you know, you guys, I mean, you talk about going from being high school sweethearts to then, if I'm counting the years right, about 10 years of not farming and doing other things and now farming and I'm just curious, has, has that changed how your relationship works now that you guys are on the farm? Oh, man. Who can answer such <laughs> a question? I mean, yeah, I think that it's been a fairly, like, it's been a fairly chaotic last six or seven years for us. Um, we described earlier our sort of transition from being renting land to buying our own farm. In fact, like, that all happened in a really compressed amount of time where we had a baby in October of our last year as tenants. 
more or less got kicked off that farm were sort of drifting as homeless farmers with a brand new baby for a month or so, found out about the farm that we wanted to buy being on the market, and then pulled all that together with a newborn, bought a farm with a very complicated USDA beginning farmer loan, and moved on to this property where like the house we live in had been uninhabited for seven years. So we were like squatting in a mouse infested house with a two month old. So that was like how we started out seven years ago on our own property. And I honestly think it's almost been like we've been recovering from that ever since. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's hard to say like what a relationship um, would look like with even maybe one of those stressors not in the picture. Um, I think, you know, we've known each other for such a long time that we have a good combination of like very, very open communication and dialogue and problem solving with each other and also some probably some pretty bad habits from like dating since we were in high school so you know we're making it work though I think (laughs) (laughs) you talked about having kids you know at this point when you were going through this massive transition on your farm having the first kid and now you've had another one um has that changed the farm for you guys so when Felix, our older one, was born, we like the last the year before he was born was a very difficult year for us for a variety of reasons. Um, but you know that was we were still working seven days a week, you know, fourteen hour days, the sort of crazy grind that you do, I guess, when you're starting a new farm. And it was it became really clear to us that with a new with a baby, like we just we weren't going to be available to do all of the little things that have to happen. And I actually think that when Felix was born, we really deliberately said, hey, we have to make our farm bigger so that we can hire more people so that we aren't the ones doing all of the work all the time. Um, and that decision has actually sort of, I think, defined how our farm has been for the last seven years. It makes sense to me what you're saying, because it's certainly something that I found as our farm grew, that it it was less of a burden on me year over year. But trying to make those changes in the moment with the kids when your management capacities are all stretched to the the breaking point, how did that go? Yeah, so I, I think in some ways we're lucky that we have such a pronounced end to our growing season with the possibility of flooding. Like there's a solid two months where we're like we're not we're not smart i mean we're doing a lot of other things we're planning and we're still selling but you know we get the off season to really reflect and then make those changes or set the change in motion for the next year and um the biggest thing that we keep coming back to for personal and farm sustainability is our employees and We've always felt um, really committed to the concept of helping other people get started in farming. We got such an amazing opportunity to start our farm with minimal investment and really grow it in what was an, sort of an unofficial incubator setting. So we had access to equipment and stuff and that we didn't buy. And so when we eventually bought our own farm, we've been very um, deliberate in 
offering similar opportunities to our employees. So we have a sort of standing offer to people who work for us for several years who are interested in starting their own farms that will offer them incubator space. Um, and I think just by, by putting that idea out there when we do our hiring and interviewing, um, I think we attract people who are committed to our farm and our mission. And so almost ironically by saying, you know, we want to continue to be a training ground for new farmers who want to move on and start their own operations. In the process of that, we've also attracted some folks who know they don't want to start their own farms, but who do believe in the same um, sort of approach to farming and personnel management that we do. So that's a really long-winded answer, but um, I, I think we know we can't do it all ourselves. We know we can hire or train or sort of support the talents of people who do a lot of stuff better than we do. And that's really the, the big picture um, management goal for us when it comes to staffing and, and sort of farm organization. One of our like primary goals with our farm is to grow not just vegetables, but other farmers. Um, and in fact, at the farmer's market that we're leaving, there are two farms, two, two people who worked for us who are now have booths at that same market. So we sort of feel like, you know, we've, we've repopulated, we've doubled our population at the market <laughs> before, before we've left it. And that's something that we feel really proud of. And I actually think that, you know, a lot of that was an outgrowth of our recognition that we can't, you know, once you have kids, we couldn't do it all. We had to get bigger. So we said, okay, like, let's grow more so that we can afford to pay more people. And then, you know, once we started having people, we realized that keeping them around for an extended period of time was so valuable. You know, the brain drain that would happen at the end of every year and then having to retrain was really, you know, emotionally and like just time consuming. Teach other people, you know, I mean, as a as a believer in what we're doing, sort of from a, um, you know, like intellectual standpoint, you're like, if what, if what I, we're doing is good, like more of this is better. And so like, let's get other people on board. I think it does create an environment among our employees that they're like, hey, you know, Jason and Siri are looking out for us and they want they're not just, you know, trying to make us work more so that they can make more money. Like they're saying, hey, like we're going to do take steps to sort of further your professional development, for lack of a better term, so that, you know, they can go on and, and start their own farms. I feel like I just said what Siri said, but less eloquently. Is there anything specific that you guys have done to promote keeping employees year after year and to prevent that brain drain? You know, this is funny, Chris. We were actually talking about this very question at lunch today before um, we started this interview. And I actually, I don't think that there are any specific strategies that we have employed to try to retain employees. It's just been sort of an overall, we just want people to be happy to come to work. And, um, you know, I guess I shouldn't say that. There are some things that we do. We have a our longest-term employee, um, Kylie, makes lunch for the crew every weekday. So it's just part of folks, you know, I guess it's kind of part of their compensation. Lunch comes with the job. So um, super healthy, usually vegetarian, like amazing hot lunch that she cooks every weekday. We all eat lunch together. I think that's, you know, and we don't talk about work really during lunch we talk about life and 
other stuff and funny videos on the internet. I think we just try to provide like a relaxed environment, but where people really understand the why of everything that we're asking them to do. Um, we're pretty transparent about all of our finances, all of our crop planning decisions. And, you know, I think that whenever there is some deep unhappiness, we've managed to address it. And for the most part, I just think we're, we're a nice place to work. People feel good about what they do. We get a lot of positive feedback from customers, from, you know, I, I, I don't think we're doing anything magical. I think we're just trying to be good people. I think there's a certain magic to that. I think something that we are is we're really like, I think we believe both of us very strongly in like honesty and transparency and um, just being totally open about everything that we're doing. You know, like there's nothing that like, I think, you know, I've heard that there are some people who are sort of feel concerned about sharing their finances with their employees or sharing, you know, like any of that stuff. And we're just like, everything is available to anybody. And I think we try and make that really clear. And then something that I think we both feel really strongly about is, is just fairness, you know? And so like, I'm always like, I think we're, whenever we're sort of like talking about jobs, you know, it's never like, I don't know how to put this, but I'm, you know, it's like, we want to make sure that everybody gets the same opportunities and that nobody is getting, you know, one, you know, particular job that everybody hates. Like it's never going to the same person, you know, we sort of, and I think we defer a lot of that like decision-making and sort of stuff to the crew. I think, I mean, I'd, I'd like to believe that they feel pretty autonomous about like choosing the sort of jobs that they're doing and sort of feeling like they can sort of specialize and be really good at something or if they prefer being a generalist, generalist and being able to do a little bit of everything, but that nobody is getting pigeonholed if they don't want to and that everybody is, has access to the same like opportunities for like personal development and, you know, like getting to do the jobs that they like to do. And then I mean, we try really hard to keep the workday reasonable. And, you know, I've heard a lot of your interviews with people who are like, we only work four days a week and, you know, we aspire to get there. And I think when you share that with everybody, we're like, hey, like, we don't want to be a, you know, 14 hour a day farm. We want to be, you know, like, you know, have predictable start and stop times so that our crew can have, you know, make plans and have a life outside of working on our farm. And I think because we always sort of put that idea out front, even if we don't live up to it, I think they know that we are like thinking about them and care about them. With that, we're going to turn to our lightning round, but first we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor. This lightning round is brought to you by you, our listeners, by setting up a small monthly donation at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. You can be a vital part of reaching and growing the Farmer to Farmer podcast community. And we're just going to keep it at that. Thank you for everybody who has helped support the show with contributions, with your reviews and ratings on iTunes and other podcast platforms, and by sharing it with your friends and neighbors. Jason, what's your favorite tool on the farm? That's a good question. I love the pallet fork attachment that goes on our tractors. As we've gotten bigger, being able to move things around on pallets is just streamlined things. And I think, you know, I'm just, I think that lifting heavy things is, seems increasingly stupid to me. And so as long as there's a mechanical way to move heavy objects about, I just think it's the, it's the best, uh, it's the best way to go about all of that. As you know, so much of what we're doing is just moving something from here to there and back again. So let's make it easy on ourselves. And Siri, you already told us that QuickBooks is your favorite tool on the farm. Do you guys do anything special with QuickBooks to make sure that 
Jason is able to access the version and and get the invoices out, and you're still able to come in and follow up and get the reports that you need to follow up? Okay, true confession here. Um, I just updated from the 2009 version of QuickBooks for Mac, which my bookkeeper was, who I, he'd helped us with payroll, was like, how have you been able to keep using it? Like, they haven't supported that for five years. So, you know, no, we don't do anything special because I don't think we know how. Jason just uses my computer to invoice, so it's all just one desktop software. We're not doing any online stuff, um, partly because actually the reporting functions are better on the desktop version, but um, that's, that's the long answer. But we just share a computer for that, for QuickBooks, and it works great. Jason, what's your favorite crop to grow? Well, I mean, it's, I think it's Costo Franco Radicchio is my favorite crop. Radicchio, generically, Costo Franco Radicchio specifically. That's the one that's that's white with the with the flecks of red and green on it. Yeah, it's more like yeah, it's buttery yellow at its heart with flecks of red, exactly. And it's shaped like a it's tulip shaped the heads. They call it the tulip of winter. That's really nice. Siri, what's your favorite crop to grow? This is a really hard question. It's like, well, what month is it? Because I have a new favorite. But I think I was gonna have to say tomatoes. Um when we were home gardeners, I just got super into like tomato chat room geek world. And um, we grew tomatoes under a lamp, like a, a seed starting rig in a closet in our 400 square foot apartment in Seattle. And I've just been a total tomato nerd um, for a long, long time. So, and I love to eat tomatoes. And uh, I think we do a pretty good job at them, even though we're in the gloomy Pacific Northwest. I going to say, not an easy crop in that neck of the woods. Siri, what's Jason's farming superpower? Oh. <laughs> I think Jason's farming superpower is a confidence that he can solve any problem. I mean, I don't know if I were left my own devices, how big we would have gotten or how highly mechanized we would have ever become. Like, tractors are not my passion, but Jason is just he he can tackle any mechanical problem. Not to say he's like a whiz bang mechanic, but you know, the first tractor we ever bought, we had to immediately replace. Um, what was that thing, Jason? The overrunning clutch, something, something. Anyway, he just mm-hmm. like looked up the plans on the online and like got in there into the oil bath and fixed it all up. And I was like, who is this guy? Like, I didn't <laughs> know you could. <laughs> and Jason, what series farming superpower? I'm really glad you asked Siri that question first to give me a minute to think about it. <laughs> um, Siri can see into the future. Um, she is so good at seeing small trends and knowing what like micro adjustments we need to make today to prevent problems down the road. Um, and she's, you know, she like, she's very decisive. She is, can say, you know, here's five options. I think this is the right one that we should do. And then, um, and then I think that she just needs to convince me that she's right. And she usually does. (laughs) Jason, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Man, you know, that is a really tough question. What would I tell myself? Will you ask Siri first? I think I want to think about it for a second. (laughs) Okay. So Siri, go. Since you're decisive, we're going to stick it on you. <laughs> yeah. 
if I could go back in time and tell my beginning farmer self one thing, um, I would have been to do a better job with weed control in our early years. I think, uh, you know, it's easy when you're just like in the weekly harvest and market grind to be like, oh, whatever. I'll mow that stand that I never picked. I'll mow it next week. And then all the weeds go to seed. And then you're like, well, now I'm going to be dealing with that for the rest of my likely life. Kind of a grumpy way to end the interview, but. (laughs) I would tell my beginning farmer self the same thing. I mean, it's just such a, (laughs) I mean, weeds, weeds are everything, right? And not having weeds is everything. And I think it's one, well, I'm not going to go on about it. This is your guys' part of the show. (laughs) Okay. So Jason, you're on. I'm up. Okay. So I would go back and I would tell myself that mechanization is not necessarily the best way to solve problems and that creating better systems is the is a better way to go about it than buying a new shiny whatever just to to undo a bottleneck. Jason and Siri, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Thanks, Chris. This is awesome. Yeah, super fun. I was hoping that one of us is going to get to throw in a little like Semper Ubi Sub Ubi or something, but you know, next time. (laughs) Noscate Ipsum Carborondum is is the one that I kind of keep falling back on, right? Yes, right? Isn't that the truth? Although I think the one that we say the most is Ali and Yaka asked when we're like, <laughs> like, all right, can't go back now. Or de goosebus non discutandum est, right? Because <laughs> there is no accounting for taste. Very cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, Chris, yeah. thank you. This was really cool. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 151 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. By looking on the episodes page or just searching for Local Roots. That's L-O-C-A-L-R-O-O-T-S. And remember, quid quid latine, dictum seat, altum videtur. Whatever has been said in Latin seems deep. I put the translations on the show notes page for the things that we were all saying at the end of the show. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. Visit OsborneSeed.com for high-quality seed, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. And by CoolBot, allowing you to build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a window air conditioning unit. Save $20 on your CoolBot when you visit FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com slash CoolBot. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoy the show, or talk to us in the show notes, or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook and on Instagram. And hey, When you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. This really matters more than I think you might be able to imagine. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com, and I will do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.